The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media and technology, entrepreneurs, authors, creatives, and so much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. There were actually a lot of phone calls while we were making the record. I was talking to our A&R guy, and he kept saying that we would we really needed a, a single. And it's great to have one. If you don't have a single, you still have an album. And we were really excited about the record we were making. Um, but there was this real pressure to have, to have a hit, and um, apparently we didn't, according to them. So they delayed the album, and then it came out in Europe anyway. We revisit our concert series from 2019, featuring Not A Surf, Silver Sun Pickups, and Professor David Lowry of the bands Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven. These road warriors discuss the hustle, grit, and experimentation necessary to making a living in the age of streaming music. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter and Facebook at FullDRadio. We start with a flashback to Nada Surf at the National in downtown Richmond. The band discussed the big heartbreak of getting dumped by their big record label and the road back to being born again as a scrappy independent. But I want to hear this, like you, you noticed out of the corner of your eye, Rick Ocasek, for everybody, Rick Ocasek of the Cars, you know, they start off in 78, 79. He had left the band after a huge Grammy run, like they took over the 80s, married a supermodel and was finished with the band by 1988, 1989. And he wanted to become a producer. This is someone who learned with uh, Roy Thomas Baker, who did Queen, with Mutt Lang, who did Def Leppard and ACDC. So were you kind of stalking him? No, no, he was just, <laughs> he was definitely on my, on my radar. Yeah, I you know. discussed him at some point. Yeah, I, I, I'd well, been on the subway two weeks before and sat next to Mitch Easter, who produced the first R.E.M. album. And I was, and I had a tape in my pocket and I was too shy to give it to him. And, I promised myself that the next time I saw somebody that I should give it to, I would. Yeah, so we were at a show at the Knitting Factory, and, and yeah, I was walking out and saw him, and absolutely. One, was he like, sitting in the corner? No, he's standing he's there. Walking there. And I, and I, what did you, how do you go, I'm Mr. So, Arcasic? Yeah, I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm in a band, and I have a, a tape I'd love to give you. And he was very kind, and he, he took it and said, it, is your number on it? Is your name on it? Okay. And did you ever expect to hear from him? It's such an well, almost no. like anecdote. I, I went, I dined out on that for two weeks, you know, we, just telling we, people that I'd given it. To, I didn't, never that, thought I'd hear from him. He called me up. He's like, dude, I, I came home and there was a message. Hold on. I heard the legend in New York is Matthew had a voice uh, answer. Yeah, messages. Hello, Matthew. It's Paulina Poroskova. I'd like for you to come over. <laughs> not true? No, not true. Not true. Um, it's a better story. No, I have not, you know, I had a roommate and I came home and he looked like the Cheshire Cat. You know, he's like, you, you should listen to the answering machine. Because, <laughs> uh, and, and it was Rick saying to call him and, you know, it was very, very kind. He was, he wasn't home and he was, uh, he was in the Berkshires or something and he gave me the number there and I called him and we set up a, a day, you know, two days later. And, uh, it was summer evening, and I rode my bike up to his house on 19th Street, and uh, 
I, this is, I think it's pretty funny. I locked my bike to a, a pole, but I hadn't locked it to, the, to anything because I was so in a dream that I must just have taken the lock and closed it again. Yeah, I didn't do anything. So they call you inside and there's a recording studio inside. Was it Paulina who answered the door? Paulina Poroskova, the uh, supermodel, the face of the 80s. No, it was, it was Rick, but, but I, I stood with, with the two of them in the kitchen for a while and they, and they really put me at ease. They were so sweet. And then, uh, and I sat at the kitchen table with Paulina and, and Rick made us coffee. Um, we domestic. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I wrote a little piece about this. I, I feel, I feel silly repeating the line because it's, it's such a, it was a compliment being paid to me, but it meant so much to me. She, she said while he was making the coffee, she said, he, he likes your phrasing. And this was the first time that somebody on the outside had, recognize something in, 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 in us and me, you know. And so, uh, yeah, I was really, really moved. And then he, he, he invited me down to his studio in the basement and he said, what is this tape? And I said, it's this, uh, you know, it's, it's an album, but we can't put it out. I told him a short story of why. And he said, well, you could release it like that. It's good. But if you ever want to re-record those songs, uh, I want to produce it and I'll, I'll do it cheap. And I said, well, in fact, we have this new drummer we're really excited about. We, we want to remake it. And he said, do you, do you have a record deal? And I said, no. And he said, OK, we'll stay in touch. And then a couple of weeks later, more fairy tale things happened in that we played a little club uh, on 16th Street. And a guy came up to me after and, and asked me for a, for a tape. And he said he worked at a record company called Number Six. This was exciting, you know, cool little label. And uh, so I give him a tape. And he calls me the next day and says, well, actually, I work at Electra, and uh, I played this for a friend, Ben Weber, who's now our manager. And Ben played it for his boss, who was an A&R guy. And so Bobby, the guy from number six, that's the name of the label, calls me that day and says, my boss wants to see you today. And so we all yeah. went up there, yeah. and they offered us a deal on the spot. Um, and we said no, just because it was kind of over. <laughs> It was the right well, thing to do. Never you know, the first thing you're offered. You know, it's kind of overwhelming. And anyway, did you have any representation, any kind of like comparables, or know what yeah, guys? We got to go in for this. We got to hold up. No. You had some financial chops. You worked at Bear Stearns, but yeah. no, no, <laughs> that's not financial chops. I always think it's like I Matt, type fat. It's like Ben Affleck <laughs> and Matt Damon and Goodwill Hunting, like retainer. I, I was, I was one with no. the Amex card. <laughs> no, no, no. But I'd always wanted to be on. There's a New York label called Matador that I really yeah. love. There's a North Carolina label called Merge that I loved, yeah. and then Touch and Go also. These are labels I, I, I really I idolized the bands on those labels and you know kind of fetishized those labels, but I couldn't get anything going. But so this was an unusual offer, but you know, commercial alternative was still happening. There were still hits on the radio of kind of left-leaning college rock stuff, but we we kind of knew that window was closing. This was the tail end of that period. So it was probably a bad idea, but it's all we had going and and uh, oh, so I called Rick and said, Electra offered us a deal. And he said, let me make a call. And he calls this company called Maverick, it was Madonna's label in Los Angeles. And they fly us out there and offer us a deal. And then my sister had worked in college radio. And her um, program director worked at Warner Brothers. And I called him for advice. And then they offered us the deal. Um, so you guys are hot. And uh, anybody in 1996, remember, for better or for worse, because we have to get into popular. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I, the people who don't know you know popular. And I think at first blush, if you'd remember that in 1996, I, I, I remember MTV, so much airplay. It was still the heyday of the $17 CD and FM radio and popular. I thought you were kind of like a frat type band. You were mm -hmm. a sarcastic mm -hmm. band. Mm -hmm. Once every two weeks, once mm -hmm. every two weeks, you know, you watch that. I'm out of the, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. to this day, people who don't know you, it's like, oh, popular, popular. But then this is important because it sets up a kind of a, a first peak. I have to know what that was like that year. I mean, I saw you on 120 Minutes. You were firmly like, you were in the MTV firmament at that point. Take me back to that yeah. moment. I remember, do you remember when we did the Stimpy dance? <laughs> we, we, we were coming back from Canada and uh and or someplace north maine or something right. and then we got a phone call from from electra saying that like that we were going on whatever rotation we were going on and right. and we started we were on the grass doing like this <laughs> happy, happy 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 joy joy yeah. like happy totally happy joy joy freaking yeah. out because really we couldn't even believe it and then it was basically like a question of a couple of days. All of a sudden, you just walk on stage, and it's like it's like the Beatles or something. Yeah. There's all, all these weird kids screaming like crazy. Was that like the MTV Total Request Live Vintage? Was that like you guys in in, in Times Square? I think we predate we predate that. I think um, did like 120 minutes. 120 minutes. But yeah, the, it, it's true. We were on tour with this band, Super Drag, and and there was a there was a little moment. Yes, so good. Great, super drag. Um, John Davis has a band called the Leaves of Memory now, who are fantastic. Um, so there was a little, a little moment when the audience in front, maybe it's just one show, maybe it was a couple, is like football players and cheerleaders. Oh yeah, they but didn't it didn't get last. It. it was just a little moment, and they then did and not then get it, the irony. Yeah, and then it was you know all kinds of people. But so was the was the deal from Electra a multiple CD deal? Were you expected after this tour? Yes. after the froth of 96 to go in. It was the proximity effect that you recorded. Yeah, that's right. And then so how many CDs did they expect from you out of this deal? Do you remember? We had a two firm and then that's they right. could they could keep us if they wanted five. to five. Yeah. If they wanted. But we had to do five, they firm. had to do two. Yeah. Proximity effect comes yeah. out what in 98, 99? 98. Europe and the United States. Mm -hmm. And this is this is a critical part. This is a critical part of the story setting up everything else. Tell me what happened. It's like the legend is you went to Europe and you got a phone call. Oh, well, let's see. There were a couple of phone calls. I mean, there were, there were actually a lot of phone calls while we were making the record. I was talking to our A&R guy, and, and he kept saying that we, would, we really needed a, a single. And it's great to have one. But the way he was putting it was, if we don't, the term was dying on the vine. You know, if we don't, if we don't have another radio hit, we'll be, we'll be dead out there. And that's, that's this... That was the beginning of realizing that we were with the wrong people because if you don't have a single, you still have an album. And we were really excited about the record we were making. Um, but there was this real pressure to have, to have a hit. And um, apparently we didn't, according to them. So they delayed the album and then it came out in Europe anyway. Yeah, they delayed it once, then they delayed yeah. it again. At, that, at one point, the second delay was quite quite long. And so the people in, uh, in that handled... Um, us in France were very excited that we had that extra time. So we're like, hey, let's fly them over. And, uh, and then we ended up doing a ton of promo in France at all these TV shows. And, and we did really, really well and got great reviews and everything. And then basically, they, Electra said, okay, you got to get the record off the shelves. So they, it was yeah. for sale for a month in France. And only in France because it came out there earlier than anywhere else. And then they just didn't release it anywhere else and then took it off the shelves in France. So it was basically like really 
complete sabotage. I mean, they, they really they wanted... They sabotaged it. Yeah, they, they wanted just, you know, they, because they wanted us to either go ahead and make another popular, literally, like, another version of it. Was Rick Okasik available for counsel at this point? Like, guys, like... Or was that... Did, did yes, he was. Yes. He was, and he helped us do an edit. Um, there, we had a song called Mother's Day, which was something that... I had a funny feeling about trying to write a hit on purpose. And so to make myself feel better about it, and now I, I wouldn't mind that at all, and I'd probably try to do it on purpose every day. You know? <laughs> I, I, I don't know how. I don't know who, who does. Um, well, some guys in Sweden know how to. Um, but so, I, so I'd written this song about, about, um, about date rape. And uh, because I've, I thought if I write about something that is important to me or an issue that I, that I think um, needs to be talked about, then I'll feel okay about trying to make a hit out of it. And I sort of failed. It's not, it's not musically super catchy, but we had a, we had a moment of thinking, okay, well, we, this is the song we think could be that. And we called Rick and asked him to come help us um, edit it. It was in Louis' studio. Yeah. And what, what were we doing? We were just like making a shorter version. Did we change it? Yeah, we were cutting out some verses and yeah. in the right. first chorus, that kind of thing. And um, right. It was really kind of him to do it because I'm sure he realized that this wasn't going to work. The legend in New York is that you guys all re regrouped under the Williamsburg Bridge and Daniel threw the masters and his bass into the East River like, it's over! <laughs> no <laughs> more music for Joe! No, it did That's like, enough people tell these stories in it, but ha this is what... This is That's what almost a true story. I did, I did have to go to the magic shop one day to, we were going to go mix. Again, like people are always really, really sweet to us in the industry because they know that we don't have a label, blah, blah, blah. So they always give us, you know, almost freebies and everything. So we're doing some mixing there. And I had to bring the master tapes, like three or four. They're heavy. Of the electromagnetic. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a Sunday. And I didn't, you know, even think about the fact that it was the marathon. So I had to cross Bedford Avenue to get to the subway. And I was carrying these super heavy tapes. And it was right when the whole thing was going through. And these guys were waiting for me. And there was nothing they could do. When I was like, oh. So I had to literally join the marathon. <laughs> Took me like seven or eight blocks right. to make it all the way across. You know? And like, I overshot the subway by like five blocks. <laughs> and I, and I, got to the, I got to the studio all like, <gasps> he's just. Uh, that's heavier than the guy with the rhino costume. Dude. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Not A Surf Live at the National. They're talking about their quarter century in the music business, the highs, the lows, the reinvention, the tenacity, the grit, the hustle. Where was that moment, if you guys can timestamp it and place it for me, was it at a bar where you guys met and regrouped over a bunch of pints and said, listen, we can either, guys, we gave this a great try. It was great. We had the euphoria of 1996. I understand that you continued to gig through it. Yeah, I remember a show at the Cooler. I think that was the first, that was a club on 14th Street, and that was the first show we'd played after realizing that that record wasn't going to come out. And, you know, it, it, it was upsetting at first. You know, I remember sitting in my, in my apartment, we were saying, well, there's no way they won't put it out. They're just not going to support it. And then a couple of days later, we get the call to actually it's not happening. And we played at the Cooler, and, um, you know, there were a few more people than we expected, and the audience was really enthusiastic, and we had a great time. And that blown out is basically the last 20 years, because what's happened since then, when people say, like, how, you know, how do you, what's the secret to staying together for so long? 
we have some answers, but the real answer is that that entire time we've had a really kind, uh, generous audience that made the shows fun. And why would we stop? You know, this is, it's a, it's a great thing to be able to do. Full disclosure, stay with us. If you're just joining us, we're revisiting our concert series from 2019. Next up, Professor David Lowry. You'll know him from the acts Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven on making a living in the era of Spotify. Joining me in studio at Rainmaker, it's a pleasure in downtown Richmond, Virginia, in Shaco Bottom, is none other than David Lowry. You know him from the bands Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven. He's lecturer of music business at the Terry College of Business at the University of Georgia. He blogs at Tricordist, where he writes uh, about artist rights. He's testified on Capitol Hill. Sir, do you tap dance? No, no, I don't tap dance. So, <laughs> where do I even start with you? I mean, we were in conversation getting ready for this show, and you recently you you had an investment in the Guitar Exchange, which sold to Etsy. You help other artists produce. You're on Capitol Hill. What, what is what's the first hat that you wear? Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I was uh, one of the musicians that was an angel investor or seed investor, actually, rather seed investor in uh, Reverb, which is the online part of Chicago Music Exchange, which recently sold to Etsy. Um, I think that's what we were we were briefly talking about. But that's, yeah, just kind of a, a random thing that <laughs> uh, happened to happen this fall. But um, yeah. So- I, you know, I have to timestamp something for you. I was in college. It was my senior year of college. And I think back to what was the first MP3 I had. And it was Everlong by the Foo Fighters in 1997. I don't know how some, some guy in the entryway got a CD burner or something like this. And that was the big reveal to me. And then in the workforce when we had Napster kind of at the turn of the century, how it completely changed the dynamic of, you know, I was untethered, unshackled to the $17 CD. Where were you? when you first saw the disruption that was about to hit the music industry? I was in Woodstock, New York. Actually, I don't remember this very clearly. I was in Woodstock, New York, and it was like 1997. And, uh, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of musicians are actually, uh, because they work around computers to record their stuff, they're pretty savvy on networking and such. And we had set up a little network in this house out in the country, and uh bass player had his... I don't even think we had laptops. I think I think we had full-on computers, um, <laughs> those big bay bo- beige boxes that we used to use back then. You're getting a Dell, dude. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that is exactly the Dell uh, uh, era. Um, and the, our bass player goes, "Hey, check this out. I'm going to email you something." So I went and checked my email really quick, quick, and he'd sent me this file, and I was. What is this file? And it's, you know, it was the name of it was a song called Surf Billy. And we had just done a, it was a working title for this track we had a rough mix of. And, you know, so I just sort of click on download the file and it takes like 30 seconds for this file to download, right? And it's a music file, it's an MP3 file. And I start playing it and it doesn't sound perfect, but I was like, wow. And he's walked in and kind of come, kind of come and stood in the doorway where I'm listening to this song. He goes, it's crazy, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, totally crazy. Like we could just transfer music, like, you know, a two and a half minute song in like 30 seconds, which nowadays would seem incredibly slow to download sure. like 
two and a half megabytes. And no one had any yeah, attachment sizes on emails. Yeah, we were and uh, FTP linker. Yeah, we were like, wow, this this is really different. So I remember my first take on it was that uh, as this sort of evolved over the next year and a half, Napster hadn't started yet, but then um, July of 1999, I think Napster comes online. And I'm just sort of looking at this go, well, this, you know, the, I was ambiguous about it and in some ways, um, or ambivalent about it in some ways, because in some ways I thought, well, you know, obviously this is going to be a problem because now you can sort of mask, you know, scale copy CDs the way that we used to copy a couple of cassettes and hand them out to our friends or make a mixtape. But, you know, now we can kind of do this on an industrial scale. This is obviously going to change things. But at the same time, I thought that well, maybe because we're we're suddenly disintermediate, we're suddenly disintermediated as musicians, whereby if we have the potential to sell our music directly to our fans, I thought the net result would be that we as artists would make more. And I mean, half of that's true in that um, there was a period, there was a quite a period, there's pretty long period in the early two thousands where. I feel like the music really was disintermediated and you had a lot of things become hits that would have never been hits, you know, sort of uh, artists could release records directly to their fans. Um, they could distribute live CDs. I remember we started just releasing our B sides, you know, that didn't things that never really made it to sort of a commercial threshold because it didn't matter anymore. There was no, you know, you weren't trying to recoup fixed costs of pressing up CDs and such. But did you ever imagine if you could interpolate what, what the year 2019 or 2020 was going to look like? We don't really own music in mass anymore. We stream. And this idea that got me excited at the turn of the century was this, you know, there were the, those crude MP3 players that came out that you could have your entire life soundtrack in a kind of a handheld brick. That's even laughable now, right? Because what you get with Spotify or Apple Music is access to substantially, what, 98% of all the music that's ever been recorded in the modern era. Did you ever see that happening? Like there, there are a lot of bottlenecks that would have gotten in the way of that. Like, why would I want to deplete my data plan? Or why would any uh, record label just give songs away for streaming? It's amazing how so many perfect things happened between Steve Jobs and, and iTunes and everything for the record industry, the recording industry to get disrupted and where it is today. Yeah. Well, let's let's go back a little bit, Robin, yeah. because I think actually that's just a curious thing about the music industry is that I think it's it has at least the means of distribution and consumption of music. Uh, it, it's constantly being disrupted, right? I mean, we could go back. I think it begins with the player piano and the radio follows on that. Jukeboxes were a weird revolutionary thing to how people consume mu music. I mean, you look at it now, it's kind of, it's kind of funny and quaint. But uh, since I started, uh, well, since Camper Van Beethoven started in 1983, five different formats have been the dominant form of how consumers consume music. It was vinyl at first in 1983. Then the cassette began to eclipse that because you could play the cassette in the car. It was sure. cheaper than vinyl. Uh, and then of course, CD, these things were all out at, at the same time. But it, but since 1983, it was like vinyl was dominant. There was a period that cassette was dominant. Cassette was dominant a lot longer than people think it was, I think till like almost 92 or something. And then the CD takes over. 
and then then you have both the illegal or the illegal and the legal um, distribution of MP3s. You know, first with things like uh, eMusic, and then Napster in its um, unlicensed form, and then iTunes in its license. Well, iTunes. Um, Take me to iTunes. Yeah. Um, so but, then, but, but, but it was just really quick what I was going to say about that and then streaming. So every seven – that's about seven years, years per format. Right. You know what I mean? Of course, the CD is still around. Of course, vinyl is still around. But I mean as being the dominant way that people consume music. So what's the leverage that Steve Jobs had, say, in the year 2002 and 2003? You're known as an Apple – you know, Apple is a computer company. It's on demand. It's made some great products, but nobody saw the iPod and what the iPod would turn into. Why would the uh, recording artists and the labels kind of bow down before Steve Jobs? And well, I think because the, the alternative was that your music would continue to be uh, licensed through. Um, would the alternative was that your music would continue to be shared on unlicensed platforms? So. But they largely agreed to the ninety-nine cent price point. Some right. tracks were a buck thirty. I, I remember going back to the infancy of right. of iTunes. Right, it was a closed. You're, you're getting a, a, a you know great fidelity file. There's quality assurance. It's not illegal. Right, you're not getting viruses and right. malware onto your computer and stuff like that. Well, also, uh, Jobs had the advantage of. I think the labels first tried um, to. Two sets of labels grouped together and tried to create download stores, but they had. Uh, it, it, I mean, their their labels are in the business of signing artists, and aside from Sony, they're not really technology companies, right? So, be right before that, the major labels had to tried to create something like iTunes. There was two different competing versions of it, but it failed miserably, and it took like somebody like. Steve Jobs and Apple that understood the user interface uh, to really put that together. Plus, as an outsider, in a way, Jobs could create a take it or leave it licensing sort of model, right? I mean, was, this is this is how much a song is going to cost. Take it or leave it. Where the labels had some fiduciary responsibility to their own artists, right? Um, and they had, you know, a label is just a basket of all these individual contracts with artists. It was very difficult for them, I think, to put together something um, like what Steve Jobs did, you know. Steve Jobs just wanted to be in the business of distributing the music, whereas labels were hampered by their relationships to artists and stuff like that. So let's take Kerosene Hat, the yeah. CD from 1993, was it? Do you right. remember what in the salad days, the the pay through, the pass through to you and the other band members would have been on, say, a $15, $16 CD? Yeah, sure. It was probably, um, uh, well... You have to you have to calculate advances into that, um, but uh, let well it's cal always calculated at wholesale, so probably about two sixty seven per record. I'm just funny. I knew you were going to ask this question, so I went oh, back and looked at so it. So then, okay, apples, tapples, <laughs> so about tapples. two two sixty seven per album, counting the mechanical royalties. And then, did you find that most people would follow through, say, uh, when iTunes was in its heyday, and download the entirety of Kerosene Hat on iTunes, or were they just going for the two or three songs that they wanted to cherry pick? For us, I th think this 
varies artist to artist, but for us, we got mostly album downloads mm. at first. Um, I know that since that time in the early days, since that time, people have become more single oriented. Sure. And I know that breaking up the album into individual tracks has allowed people to just sort of cherry pick which songs they want. So right? if we took low specifically on Spotify, let's say what, 17 million streams, 18 million streams, do you know what you've earned just from that hit track in, in, in its streaming incarnation? Uh, uh, if you're saying low on Spotify, yeah. Um, well, I'd have to, have to punch it. How it's many? the ballpark. Let's say 17 million streams. Yeah, so we would go um, – it varies quarter to quarter because there's a floating – it's a percentage of revenue. But uh, did you say 17 million streams? Yeah. I haven't even looked to see what's on there. Well, does one pay Ten better than the other? Point. Oh, yeah. That's approximately – the 17 million streams is approximately $85,000 to all rights holders. Okay. So that would be um, – the record label, the music publisher, and then the artist royalty is carved out of the record label share. And then songwriters have a separate allotment. So let's let's talk. But eighty five thousand dollars is the total number that needs to be broken up. Yeah. I would say about um twenty two thousand of that goes to the members of the band and all the songwriters. So was there ability to push back? I mean I'd like you to get into the conversation of your your case against Spotify and kind of what it did wrong. Spotify, you, you know, it's now a public company. It had a blockbuster IPO. Um, they are losing money hand over fist because they say that they need to pay out the bulk of the money they take in from paid subscriptions and advertising, whatever it is, back to artists. It's extremely expensive for them to scale and hit a moment of, um, you know, escape velocity where they can mm. kind of profitably do this. That it's by definition at the very outset a hugely money losing business. So don't try to hit us up for money. We're we're losing money too. Right. What do you say to that? Well, free market. My belief in just that free markets actually will solve the problem. Um, if artists, uh, well, first of all, let's let's look at, let's look at whether they are paying too much or too little. Uh, most major labels have deals and okay so so most major labels also distribute the independents right so whatever their deal is the independents are going to have approximately the same deal so about 50 to 54% of gross revenue from the streaming services goes to the recording owners and then songwriters get say another about 12.4% so you're looking in somewhere in the range of, uh, you know, somewhere in between 62 and 67 percent of the revenue is going to the rights holders. So that leaves them with a margin of over 30, 30 percent. Spotify. That's, yeah, Spotify. That should How is be- it at Apple now that Apple's largely evolved away from the iTunes model to Apple Music where you're kind of streaming music off of the app? Well- Apple doesn't now. Apple pays approximately twice as much, but that has to do with the fact that Apple doesn't have a free tier, right? So um, that percentage of revenue I just talked about is based on a subscription only, not on ad revenue, mm-hmm. right? So Apple is um, pays more, but also remember Apple. You know they're they're in the business of selling handsets and other hardware and you know 
AirPods and Apple Watches and stuff like that. And so music is kind of a loss leader for sure. them, right? And um, Google, with their platform, they're in the business of, you know, essentially data harvesting so they can target their advertising, right? Spotify stands alone, and I'm pessimistic about their ability to survive standing alone. And again, um, artists have a love-hate relationship with Spotify because in one way, we don't like that they pay lower fees than something like Apple, but in another way, we want them to survive and be competitors. It's better if you're selling a product that you have a lot of people, to sell, a lot of different companies to sell it to. And so people like myself are concerned if only the Apples and the Googles can survive in the music streaming business and the standalone platforms like Spotify, um, Rhapsody, and Tidal can't survive, you know, that's just bad for artists. If an artist seems to have the clout, why can't the artist pit one of these guys against the other one? I would think Apple Music would be very worried about Spotify, would be very worried about Amazon Music, and Amazon being the ultimate content loss leader of all. I mean, they're not getting judged that on that. True. You think they could just throw that in. So why isn't someone like you able to come in and say, hey, I have these really bespoke sessions that I'm actually burning on a CD. I'm actually hand painting the mm. covers myself and selling them at concerts for 25 bucks. I'll give them to you, you know, make them bid for you. And have the stuff that's the non-commodity track, the non-studio session. Is that is that even possible? Does the artist have that? Well, um, it's it's difficult because um, I don't think a streaming service. I don't have enough clout for a streaming service to see the advantage of cutting a a direct deal with me and having an exclusive on my music. However, you have seen some of the bigger artists put out exclusives with a single streaming service that the streaming service will have for a few months. And it must somehow be very profitable for the artists to do that. And it must help the streaming services in a way. I see Apple, um, who, who did Apple, did, didn't Apple do an exclusive with Frank Ocean and uh, Chance the Rapper? Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure Taylor those are Swift correct. Taylor played right? them very deftly against each other and yeah. withholding stuff. So if you have enough clout, yes, you could get more than just sort of the pre-packaged take it or leave it deal with a streaming service and get more money. But they're never going to do anything like that with somebody like me. However, there are plenty of options for somebody like me who's like sort of a niche artist with a cult following. Um you know, we forget the promise of the internet was disintermediation, selling directly to our fans. Um, you, we can still do that, and, and that's exactly what I did with the uh, with my last recording. What I did is I just uh, I wanted to do an autobiographical project, and I realized that um, really, if I was going to do an autobiographical project, it was probably just me with an acoustic guitar and just singing. Right, so it's a very easy record to record in a way, tech, from a technical viewpoint. And then I thought about it. I go, you know what I'm going to do is I'm not actually going to put it on the streaming services because I think this is a niche product. I think this appeals just to my fans. I already have their email addresses. A lot of times I have their um, mobile number to send them an SMF, you know, SMS, a text, sure. right? And so I just sold this directly through our website. 
what is it? A protected MP3? Is it a CD? No, it's a CD. Who has a, a CD burner anymore? You'd be surprised. Everybody has them. I mean, I got a new <laughs> MacBook. It doesn't even have a USB drive. If you wanted I, to sell me a you know DMV like protected uh, USB drive with the MP3s in it that I couldn't share, I mean, I would have to go around town. I can't find a printer anymore. <laughs> well, um, what I did, well, first of all, the whole point of doing this was this is a niche product. And by selling a thousand copies at $25, which, you know, I just said, if you don't want to buy it, you don't have to. It's a free market. Um, I made the equivalent of what I would have. I would have had to get 71 million streams on YouTube or 7 million on Spotify or about 4 million on Apple to make that much money, right? Now, look, just because I sell the limited edition CD and it's just sort of a niche product that I put out there to the fans doesn't mean I can later – doesn't mean I can't later put it on the streaming services and make it widely available to everybody else. But to me, this was a no-brainer. If you're a niche artist, why don't you sell first – do window it like movies do. Are. Sure. Like first, it's on – it's in theaters on a limited number of screens right now. So I just sold it at shows and off the website for five or six weeks. Full disclosure, stay with us. If you're just joining us, we are revisiting our concert series from 2019. That December, Silver Sun Pickups joined me in studio to delve into the LA band's journey from gigging for lunch money to registering 10 top 20 hits on Billboard's Alternative Songs chart, on top of selling over a million records in the US. Joining me from Rainmaker Studios in downtown RVA, this is such a blast. Silver Sun Pickups, founded in 2000, having registered 10 top 20 hits on Billboard's Alternative Songs chart and a million records sold in America, Silver Sun's fifth studio album, Widow's Weeds, is now out. Uh, in studio with me, Brian Aubert, Joe yeah. Lester, Chris Guanlao, and Nikki Moninger. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You say my name with such bravado. <laughs> I'm just so... I like I'm, it. I, I like can't the way believe you say that it. I'm having you here where I recorded my first show oh. uh, five years ago, and I did admit on Online and we're going to share a lot of things today that I do have a bit of imposter syndrome. No. You know, suburban dad bod like me having one of my favorite acts <laughs> on here look from LA, but, You look pretty incredible. Um, thank you for <clears throat> schlepping out here ahead of your big show five at the years, National huh? tonight. Five years, indeed. How do you feel? Um, five years, you guys are talking 20 years. Well, I mean, I want you to- Time is a flat circle. That's true. Nikki, take me back. This legendary (laughs) rock crash pad in Silver Lake and uh, the story of the 50 cent microwave burritos from Silver Lake Liquors. I mean, this was a time of, uh, you know, living on the cheap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Brian and I uh, were living in a house together and- um, after a couple of years, uh, we had been playing in other bands and we said, let's start our own band. And now yeah. here we are 20 years later. <laughs> the, other, the, the ancillary legend is that you met on a flight back from studying abroad oh, and you were both right. trying to crib, crib uh, she alcohol to from the drink story. cart. She likes to avoid that story. <laughs> now that you're a mom, she's, you don't want the kids to yeah, she's trying kids now, so she rewrite his I mean, not like you were binge drinking, Nikki. It's just that you yeah. were you were definitely- You met on a flight. You were doing we some uh, canoodling. Stealing alcohol. She was. Stealing alcohol from the cart. Well, I think, because um, going over there- I think Who'd have thought eight. that that one yeah. moment when you did that would be brought up? Yeah. Uh, but I think because it was an international flight, I mean, technically I was under 21, but- And you were doing it on international waters. If I waters, had been so. on- inter- Yeah. So it was okay, but- This little hand. I just see this little hand come out. Ooh. <laughs> and just take things from there. So you guys resolved to get this house in Silver Lake that was uh, infamous for hosting people. You would always have shows in your living room? Ooh, yeah. yeah. I can't imagine doing that now. 
It's exhausting. <laughs> it was exhausting. <laughs> Got to a point where we stopped doing that because we were touring and and um, gone a lot, and we kind of shut down that that thing in our house, and that it we couldn't shut it down. Like people would just start coming. They would show up anyways <laughs> on Fourth of July. We would always have July, a party on Fourth of July. Fourth of July, Halloween was a big one. Like people just come to our house decked out, and we went, "We're not having a party." <laughs> <laughs> please, please go home. And then when it became we just sort of our house was a venue and back then in silver lake you could do that and now though you know the cops would come for sure but we could have bands perform and it was really fun and a very communal experience and then we started to get in trouble from clubs around town and we we just thought it's not we're not in we're just having our friends from england come and play and yeah. their shows sold out over there don't get mad and then we started getting touring things coming and that's when my brain couldn't handle it anymore because when somebody was ordering me yeah. around like a like you a became sound the guy. sound guy yeah <laughs> I remember one guy in particular I won't name the van but he was just like excuse me put this on turn this on and I went buddy this is our house <laughs> <laughs> so know. when when did this congeal into an entity and tell me about the name because there are a lot of misconceptions about the name it's a guitar pickup mm -hmm. I mean it does go uh -huh. back to the liquor store mm -hmm. you weren't sure. exactly always getting hooch from the liquor store no. it was about the bare What's essentials hooch? pretty much. Alcohol. Oh, alcohol. Yeah. Hooch. Do you not know what hooch was? <laughs> no. <laughs> wow. I've never heard that I mean, word. Even if it you heard it dirty. here first just... live on the radio that yeah. Nikki learned something. Can we say hooch on the air? You can say it. You yeah, can sure. assume. Hooch. This is full disclosure. So when... when... <laughs> what did you think hooch was? Um... Pot maybe when did it when did it solidify when did it kind of congeal into it and and the band's name and you guys deciding to go out and strike out on your own we had the band name pretty early on in my brain it just sort of was something that represented a time and place of the neighborhood you know and we lived right there pretty close to Silver Lake and Sunset Boulevard and I remember thinking of bands like Beachwood Sparks and bands that would name themselves after locations and that location seemed Seemed very important for us at the time. Really, later would be much more important once we started playing shows and how communal that was for us. Mm. And so that's sort of how we thought of it. Really, it sounded like a little, little like bike gang. <laughs> You know? Silver Sun pickups. Yeah, I just it thought like, oh, the like pickups are here. Once the name was set, then I was like, okay, now we can practice. Well, yeah, but we now we should name. start a band. <laughs> we had a band name before anything. Can you tell me how Pykel came together, your oh, debut boy. EP? I mean, there is a poignant, there's a poignant backstory to it. I loved it. And to give mm, you, you know, thanks. by way of full disclosure, I heard my first track. I was in uh, uh, North Miami's Steve's Pizza, which is a venerable pizza joint on Biscayne Boulevard. And they always play great music. We probably played and, there. <laughs> <laughs> Lazy Eye comes on. Oh, yeah. And which was like my gateway drug to yeah. Silver Sun Pickups. And I remember this is before the iPhone or anything. So I had to go home and Google the lyrics and mm -hmm. I discovered Silver Sun Pickups. And then subsequent to that, um, you know, everything else with Rusted Wheel and a, a song that I, you know, I cannot put down. I think it's on my most played of, of every year is Kissing Families. Mm. And so I want to know the backstory to Pykel. I want to know um, the name, the person, what he meant to you and, and how that thing came together. Well, I can kind of go into uh, how the EP came about. And Nikki, you could probably speak more about Pykel. But really, we were just trying to be a good band. And so we were just concentrating on performing live all the time. And because we played shows so early before we were really, <laughs> before we were solidified in any way, before our sonic identity was a little more clear, we were playing, trying out things in front of people. So we were really just 
thinking about that, and it, that went on to you know, a couple of years that we were playing all these great shows, and it didn't really occur to us to record or any of that stuff, you know? Mm. And then when it came time to start doing those things, um, the way we would work was to just sort of work with people that we liked and didn't think about what it, you know, major labels or any of that sort of stuff. It was just like, we, we didn't, we kind of really didn't believe that this is something you could really do. So we, all we could do was make sure that we were really happy with what it is we were doing and the people we worked with that we really liked them. So we ended up having a very tight knit, world and the people danger bird in los angeles who we started working with wanted to put out something really quickly <coughs> that for them represented a lot of what was going on the last couple of years in los angeles before we make an album mm. so we were just gonna do do this thing really really quick some of it old recordings that we've had over the years and then a couple new ones with our friend Rob. and that dropped in 0506 yeah and so we separated the songs that we had into what would be on the CP and then what would go on the the next the actual album and then we'd write for that album and so once we separated those songs and wrote some new ones for Pykel it was just going to come out <clears throat> and we were going to record our record but because of stations like KEXP in Seattle sure. and things like that it caught Kissing Families caught wind and we ended up touring heavily in a way that we never had before on the EP. And so we were just like, while Whoa. recording, while recording, <laughs> while recording. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that stretched out that recording for that record. So there was about a good year and a half where we were on tour for the EP and then coming back and making what would eventually become our first record, Carnivus. So um, I'm curious when you step back from all this, I imagine all of you had iPods to start mm. the decade. And we're talking about the- I was late yeah. in the iPod game. I mean, this has been an ongoing theme with our with our music guests. I still guests use my iPod. On this show. <laughs> but the, the era of the $17 CD was waning very quickly. So it's a very different thing when your album drops. You're now kind of in Steve Jobs' iTunes world. Mm -hmm. And you're are, are you gigging for the 99 cent track? I mean, where was your mind in um, 06, 07, 08? Is it about- records is it about cd sales at that point i mean this is even before the iphone and spotify i mean honestly it was music. hard to wrap our minds around that that and still is a hard thing to think of and we're so uh staring at just tr again still trying to make great records and be proud of what we're doing yeah and all those things are are so for us difficult things to grasp well, like it's always been difficult for us to grasp that it's a product you know, and it goes out and there's this and that. And it's something that we can't think of really because we don't know what that information would do to how, what we would do with it. You know, would we alter something? Could we alter something? No. So I mean, we, I honestly, think we're we were just touring. In, in like vinyl world, like we're just trying to make an album. Like, I don't think we ever think of 99 cent Apple. We didn't know, know what, we didn't honestly know how people were getting it and especially then we would hear from bands who were making records before us and when we started in this world which was very wild west like music was coming from all over the place we heard a lot of complaints from those bands because they saw it really shift and what they sort of relied on was changing and we were birthed in this world so we didn't quite yeah, like relate the, our, our first records started, came out like really at like the like inflection point of when it all sort of flipped over which <clears throat> 
you, we, I think we, I only, we, I anyway only kind of realized sort of in hindsight, it was just like, oh, like everything was a mess. Like people inside the record industry didn't know what was uh-huh. going on or how to, uh-huh. yeah. how to like, how music was going to get distributed. So Danger Birds or, took a flyer on you though. Did they cut in advance? I know this is kind of boring no, quotidian no. stuff, but we're talking to how that then shifts to the presence and your ownership of your label now. Uh-huh. But how did that work? I mean, with your expectations going into it that, I mean, maybe we don't have to subsist on 50 cent burritos from Silver Sun Liquors anymore. I don't think it was necessarily a financial decision because I think we uh, and I truly just didn't believe in it like mm-hmm. that, you know. Um, at one point, we felt successful when it didn't cost us to play shows in L.A. You know what I mean? We thought, <laughs> you had to pay. Pay to play. I mean, play, it, it, play to pay. It, it didn't, we didn't make money from it, but it didn't cost us. It probably did, though, time. Yeah. I mean, I remember we were, I think, Silver Lake Lounge, which is one of the places we played all the time. We had done like five shows and hadn't gotten paid. So I kept asking, you know, our friend Scott, who ran, who ran, um, I ran things over there and he's like, oh yeah, 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 I've been meaning to pay you. He gave me an envelope and it had $70 in it for five shows. So, I mean, we weren't doing it for the money. So what did you do to pay the rent? What did you do on the side to gig? I mean, um, this is pre-Uber, pre-gig economy, but it, to a certain extent, uh, musicians have always been part of the gig economy. Yeah. I mean, I worked at uh, uh, Warner Brothers Records in the music video department which is actually where I met or where I worked there with, um, Doug, our friend. Mm. So, um, uh, but I just had a regular job. So we would practice, you know, at around seven at night, you know, all the time and, or, you know, I'd run home and then we would play the shows, but I wasn't thinking in my mind that it would be something that we could actually do for a living. I mean, that would be like a dream, but it wasn't, you know, I'm also like, based in reality you know we need to <laughs> and I think so it was it, a surprise to all of us it was it nice though because i yeah i worked with people you know in the music business so they were understanding like they would let me go on tour for two weeks and keep my job so i could do things you know on the road which was great and that you really held on to that job i held on yeah, yeah. <laughs> and finally in 2007 i was working tours. at rhino entertainment which is box sets for yeah, you know, yeah. tons of things and um they 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 took me in the office and they're like we feel really bad but you haven't been here for like eight weeks <laughs> and we're going to have to let you go and I was like it's okay because you I know have not I, been, I haven't been here for eight weeks so they're like we just really want you to have insurance and it was just nice that they were so supportive. Can you talk about the ramp up to Carnivas? That was the second. We changed Carnivus to have a sort of different sound because we always like albums to have their own vibe. Sure. You know, and Pykel was known enough for us to kind of jump off of it, really. The criticism was that iTunes was slowly killing the album, the the beginning oh, right. to end <clears throat> listen, that a lot of people were just cherry picking the 99 cent track. I mean, in that unique case- I mean, that's case, possible. I mean, I don't know. With the well, at the same time, it gets it. it out to more people, but the people that really understand us will go and listen to the whole album because that's how we've set it up. But- I mean, we're appreciative if people want to listen to any song. Yeah, so I really want to like do it, whatever. Really opened us up to the you know world by having by mm-hmm. having things like that. And, and you know, like in the beginning, we didn't have a website. So when something like MySpace came out and we could put our songs 
you know, on the internet, that just opened up another step for us because, you know, we've always been so busy just making music and playing that we're not thinking of the marketing of ourselves. Yeah, because so. the way people access music for us is every time we come out of the record, this we hear about this is the way this is the new sure. way to do it and then I'm like okay and then in our heads we go and then when we come out with another record you're going to tell me something, something else, else. Yeah. I just, it's, a, yeah. it's a new thing what's your TikTok strategy yeah, yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> whatever I mean however you get it you know if you care to get it and however you get it go for it Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly, Kristen O'Connor and Jeff McManus at Rainmaker, and The National, a great venue in downtown Richmond, Virginia. We podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate our show. A shout out to the radio stations that carry Full Disclosure, including WVTF, Virginia Public Radio, across the great Commonwealth. WERA up in Arlington, Virginia and in D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPQQ out in Ventura, California. KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Feel free to get in touch over Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. I might still have a MySpace account somewhere. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>